All right. Welcome to the Book Club interview. My name is Scott Hollister, your host. Today's guest is Terry Moore, who wrote Building Legacy Wealth. So excited to have Terry on the show today. Terry, welcome. How are you doing? I'm honored to be here and glad to be here. Me as well. Anytime I said, you know, I get to sit down with an author, always excited. So before we get into things, I'd like to ask you, you know, tell listeners a little bit more about your history in real estate and where you came from. Well, a couple of quick shout outs. First to you, Scott. I don't know very many people who read 50 nonfiction books a year. Maybe there's three of us that I know. And <laughs> so I'm glad to be in your book club. Um, that's a good thing. Uh, also, I want to I want to give a shout out to two of the mentors that I've had who were your two most recent guests, Gene Trowbridge, who wrote It's a Whole New World Out There. I became financially independent by doing syndications. And the last time I taught a CCIM class, Gene was my co-instructor. And then previous to that, you had interviewed Blaine Strickland with his book, Thrive. Blaine is my brokerage coach, and I've been fortunate to be coached by a lot of people. My wife says I still need a lot more coaching to be domesticated. But Blaine is probably the best coach I've ever had. So I'm not going to go into all the history of everybody else you've ever interviewed, but you have good taste in until now. And terms of who you've interviewed and you've got great people to be paying attention to. So in terms of my book, essentially, I've spent my lifetime getting ready to write this book. Um, For 50 years, I've helped adults make smart choices about money. When I was in college, I was doing things that was helping adults make smart choices. In between my undergraduate, my graduate degree, I sold housing. It was mobile homes, but it was still housing. And then after the MBA, I worked with Bank of America. And so I was helping companies and the bank make good choices about how does the income stream match the personality of the decision maker? You know what? Bank of America didn't want to loan on brothels. There were certain kinds of income stream where they said no thanks. And that matching the income stream with the decision maker has been important in everything that I've done, because later, I my biggest client was a small manufacturer, and I ended up in a very, very tiny way doing, um, helping them buy businesses and figure out which businesses to get involved with and which businesses to say, this is not for us. Later, I bought a mom and, mom and pop hardware store. Let's see, that would have been from my mom, and I guess that was, well, my pop. And there, too, we were helping people make smart choices about energy conservation and intelligent living, appropriate technology kinds of things. It wasn't just nuts and bolts and plumbing fixtures, although we did that, too. And then when I came back to San Diego, I was coaching my former boss as he was trying to figure out what's the best way to make money in real estate. And he paid me for a year to go interview smart people to read books and then give this guy a class. And he'd ask me a bunch of questions. And I'd go away a week, try to answer his questions. And then I also ended up being a shopping center developer, which was creating an income stream and then selling the income stream. That was like a license to print money, a lot Mm -hmm. like syndication. 
And then they changed the syndication laws and ended up doing brokerage. And that was 25 years ago. And again, we've been matching the little old lady with the little old lady investment and the bright young Harry Turk with the bright young Harry Turk investment scheme so that we could get people who are doing the right thing. Because what's good for you now is wonderful. If you have a 79-year-old uncle, it's probably not the same thing for your 79-year-old uncle or your 93-year-old aunt. So the book is designed to help people understand where they are and then help them figure out what's the next step. Mm -hmm. in, the, in the process, I've not only been a broker, but also a syndicator, but that's a separate story. And you've already covered that story with Gene Trowbridge. That's a great thing to do. That is. Well, that's an interesting background. I love in the book that you started out with foundational principles, you know, talking about values, priorities, emotional intelligence, um, and how that wealthy actually think. And I love that. And anytime anybody asks me, is, is a book worth it? And you just had it right there. It took me 50 years to write it and we're going to go pay 20 bucks. It's, it's a steal of a lifetime. So I'd yes. love to talk about how you worked with those wealthy clients over the years and, and how the wealthy think. What comes to mind when you reflect back on that? Well, one of the key things is you need to know what's important to you. And if you begin with the end in mind, Stephen Covey, you know what things you're willing to sacrifice and what things you're willing to are non-negotiable. And a lot of folks come to me and they say, I want the property on the beach with hardly anything down, the fixer-upper that I can make a bunch of money with. They say, well, you know, here's what I'd like. I'd like the do no exercise, eat ice cream, sit on the couch, gain muscle diet. So if you give me that diet, I'll give you that property. And since you can't do that, then we've got to do trade-offs. And what's your legacy going to be? Sometimes in the next 100 years, Scott, you're going to be gone. I hope your inheritance is a great one. I hope it's got a lot of zeros. But when you leave something behind, the stuff is just stuff. Whatever you give to people is only valuable to the extent that they could spend it. Your legacy, Scott, is what people will do, what people will say, what people will think because you were here. So I ask my clients, what do you want to do now that you're grown up? And then based on how they answer that, it's values and priorities. Then we figure out how do we get there because you can't have it all. If you want the beach, it's high down payment, it's low cash flow, it's bragging rights, but it's not wealth building. Wealth building comes from the least desirable one-third of the zip codes in your metropolitan area, the places where people say, I never knew you were a slumlord, but that's where you make the most money. You can treat people well, but you've got to figure out what's the right investment because what's good for your younger nephew and what's good for your oldest aunt are not automatically what's good for you. And 40 years from now, what's good for you won't be the best what's good for you now. So part of it is, what do you want to do now that you're grown up? What's your legacy? And then how do we get there? I'm my client's guide. They tell me where they want to go, and we'll tell them how to get there. And if they don't like that, then we'll say, we'll give them another choice. But they decide where they're going to go, and we help them get to where they want to go. That's great. So it sounds like you're more of like a financial advisor. Yes. 
it's, it's beautiful. And then acting as, you know, their intelligent broker that really knows and understands real estate investing. Exactly. That's great. Yeah. You just brought up one of my favorite takeaways from the book. And I think you believe you're talking about Weight Watchers. And here's a quote right here. It's losing weight is hard. Keeping it off is hard. Being obese is hard. Pick your hard. And I love that. That when I read a book in so many books, there's very few that like will stop me dead in my tracks. And it's, you know, investing is hard doing these things, hard, but also the repercussions of not investing are also hard. And, and that just, I think I needed it right there in that time just to click, Hey, everything's hard, but you got to pick the one that's going to be best for you. You know, being a great husband is hard. Being divorced is hard. Being a great parent is hard. Having kids addicted is hard. Everything you've ever done worthwhile is hard. The only things that were easy were sin and sloth and excuses. But the, the discipline and the reproof, the, the champions know that discipline is not optional. I, I read a story from a coach yesterday, and we were talking about discipline and reproof. And he sent me a page by a guy who wanted to be Mr. New Zealand. So he's a buffed out stud. And he wrote about what it took to become the buffed out stud, how he had to eat. Lots and lots. Yeah, that sounds good. Had to exercise lots and lots. That didn't sound like so much fun. Then he bulked up, and then he went on a starvation diet to try to trim off the excess fat. <laughs> I don't want to be Mr. Zealand, Mr. New Zealand. That costs too much. But the point behind it was you and I pick things. There's a lot of things you could be doing now. There's a lot of things all our listeners could be doing now. But if we add value to them, They'll come back and see your show next time. But the key thing is figure out what it is that's worthwhile. If it's worthwhile, it's going to be hard. Saving money is hard. Being 70 years old and having to work the rest of your life is hard. Recovering from cocaine is hard. Getting a cocaine hit is really good for a couple of minutes, and it's a bad life. So everything that you do that worthwhile is hard, and part of what I and invite and challenge my clients to do is pick your heart. It's all going to be hard. Nothing's going to be easy. So let's pick the things that will matter to you. When you're gone, what do you want people to say about you? What will you, what do you want people to have changed because you were part of their life? Mm-hmm. And I thought that was another beautiful thing in the book when you, when you talked about an obituary, right? How often is, is maybe even mentioned, you said that they were wealthy or they made so much money, but the majority of it was they made this person's life better, right? Building that legacy. I think that's where your, your book is, is different in a great way compared to other real estate books is it starts with that foundation principles, building that legacy the right way and also becoming wealthy. So I thought it was, it was great. Okay. And David Brooks calls that the eulogy values. When I mentioned to my wife that I was going to write a book, she said, what? You're going to write another get rich quick book. No, it's not worth the cost. I didn't know what it was going to cost. I said, this has to be more than that. It's not just how to make your money multiply money. Scott, you already know this money is a great slave and it's a terrible master, but legacy, that's a more worthy goal. And the legacy is what people do, what people say, what people think because you were in their life. And so most people read my book because they want to know how to build wealth. Now, those truths are in the book, but more important, that's, that's the meat of the book. But the seasoning of the book is the legacy. 
if my book blesses people, if it helps people, it won't just be just because it told them how to use leverage, how to be in the right area, how to make the right choices. I hope it does that, and I'm sure it will do that. But the real value of the book is going to be inviting people to think about the bigger issues and making sure that they put their life in what matters. William Carey one time said, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. Well, this book invites and challenges people to lead lives worth imitating. It's beautiful. Now, instead of you know coming from the spices, let's get into a little bit more of the meat. So I want to talk about, you know, as a broker, you know, you say that you can have your say or you can have your way, but you can't have both. So what does that quote mean for you? From time to time, the clients that you serve, that I serve, they can say, you know what, I don't have to put up with this malarkey. They can be insulted by a jerk or a clerk, and they can say, I don't have to put up with this. And they get to decide what's the most important thing to them. If they try to treat somebody else less, it probably won't work, and they may walk away from a deal. But if they say five years from now, my success is closing this deal, they'll make different choices. If they say five years from now, my choice is always to show poise, grace under pressure. They'll respond differently. The key thing is figuring out what matters. There's a lot of jerks in real estate. Some of them are brokers. I hope it's rarely me. <laughs> but there's a lot of jerks on both sides. Because well, let's face it, you've got one millionaire dealing with another millionaire, and they're probably never going to transact business again. They're two anonymous, selfish folks. And there's not necessarily a fairness button. So it happens situations, you've seen it and I've seen it, where there's income statements and what they told the IRS is not necessarily what they're telling the buyer. Well, the buyer makes a choice. What's most important? Buyer buys the opportunity, not the guarantee, the opportunity. You're not buying the seller. The sellers made stupid choices. That doesn't mean the property is flawed. It means the seller made stupid choices. Sometimes the best opportunities are dealing with a really ornery scoundrel because he's such a pain in the neck that most people won't deal with it. But if you can hold your nose long enough to get the grant deed signed, you can buy a property that other people wouldn't put up with. Value is created by finding fixable problems. If you've got bad sewer and you spend money to fix the sewer, you don't get any more rent. If it's got terrible paint and you buy the property and you repaint it, that's fixable. If it's got lousy landscaping and you fix it, that gets you more rent. If it's on the wrong side of a floodplain line, you're just stuck. And if you're in a town where it's losing population, that's not a fixable problem. If it's mismanaged, that's a fixable problem. So you should be able to hold your nose long enough to get control of the property and fix the problem. And when you create value, you get higher rent. And when you sell the property, you sell it for a multiple of the higher rent. And that's the magic of income property. It's like development, but with lower risk. You don't just sell it for $100 more a month. You don't just sell it for 1,200 times the 
dollars a year, but you sell it for some multiple of twelve hundred times a year. And it's because you're selling it in multiple that's the problem. But you have to, pardon me, kiss a lot of frogs to find the prints. And some of the frogs are ugly and smelly, but the one who can go through the most stuff and close the tougher deals can find the biggest problems to solve and make the most money. Yeah, and that's a great thing. Forcing that equity on commercial properties, that's that's the magic. There's always emotion in, in real estate. You know, whether somebody's buying the house because it's cute or they're buying the property because they can see a vision. There's a lot of people who sell houses and they say, boy, I want to get into commercial. So I want to get into investments because I don't want to have to deal with emotion. Well, it's hard. Guess what? There's emotion on this side. It's just slightly different. So let's go back to the jerk for just a second. Within the last week, I bought gas. Within the last week, I went to the grocery store. You know, when I was buying something at the grocery store, I didn't say to the clerk, what's your religion? What's your politics? What's your favorite team? I said, $21.14. Well, here it is. Thanks. Bye. When I bought fuel, I didn't say $52.43. But first, tell me who you voted for. Tell me what you think about rent control. Tell me about your view of spiritual after. It was just a transaction. I don't have to invite them on vacation with me. I just need to transact with them. And there are folks who get distracted by things which don't matter. You're not buying the clerk. You're not buying the seller. You're buying the property. You're buying the gas. You're buying the quart of milk. You want to behave ethically but you're not buying the person, you're buying whatever they're selling you and vice versa. You don't have to agree with whoever you're gonna sell it to. You need to transact with them and go away. Mm. Well, that's well said. And many times on both sides of the transaction, it feels more of a, a mediator's job than a real estate job. Keep, you're, keep... you're tougher than I am. I <laughs> do dual agency about once a year and it only troubles me on the days it end and why. <laughs> that would be all the time. I'm not smart enough, Scott, to figure out how to get how to help the seller get the highest price at exactly the same time that I'm helping the buyer get the lowest price. Mm-hmm. That's uh, I, I'm not that smart. That's really difficult to do. Yeah, it's a, a tough position. Now, uh, what about preparing to invest properly? Profitably in apartments. No, you chose an apartments as your investment vehicle. And why did you see the value in you know residential as opposed to industrial office or retail? You can't tell it, but I'm a belt and suspenders kind of guy. I'm a low risk kind of guy. Apartments are lower risk than office or industrial retail. And it's not just my crackpot idea. The banking regulators looked at bank loans over a century. And they establish different risk levels. If a bank makes a loan on a CD, that's the lowest level of risk. If they make a deal, if they make a loan on a development deal, that's the highest level of risk. Well, a single family house loan is riskier than a loan against a certificate deposit, but it's much safer than almost everything else. And apartments are a little bit riskier than that. And for each level of risk, the federal banking system sets an amount of reserves, which is a a different way of saying they set a cost. Mm -hmm. And the banking history shows that apartment loans are half the risk of office, industrial, or retail. 
So in San Diego County, we're a weird and special place, and I'm deeply grateful to live in this weird and special place. Our worship code has 4% vacancy. In most of the nation, there's 5, 6, 7, 8% vacancy. Well, in our wonderful spot, the office industrial and retail vacancy is always 50% higher, and in some cases, it's three times as high. We've had 10 to 20% vacancy in office industrial and retail in San Diego County. We don't have 20% vacancy in apartments. Almost everybody you and I know wants to live with indoor plumbing and a roof over their head. There are some homeless folks, but most people want a roof over their head and indoor plumbing. Not everybody needs an office or a retail or industrial space. So there's a huge demand. Sometime in our lifetime, there's going to be recession. Whether I'll live through three or 13, I don't know. Whether you live for four or 24, I don't know. But I hope you live through a lot of recessions. When a recession comes, people still need to live somewhere. But businesses will shut down. Offices will close. Warehouses will shut up. They won't all shut up. But families are not going to die because of the recession. We still need housing. So apartments are the lowest risk. And it's not just me that thinks so. It's the federal government. And so the, the lending rates show the history. And anybody can see that there's better loans and easier loans for multifamily than there are for office industrial retail. Oh, that's great. Now, when you started out Actually, with your- there's one there's one other thing. Lots of people that you and I know have fifty to two hundred fifty thousand dollars, so they can buy a house or a condo or maybe some apartments. Not very many people that you and I know have a million to two and a half million. With a small amount of money, you can buy some rental housing. With a small amount of money, you can't buy a shopping center. You can't buy a bank building. It takes more money to play at the other property types. Hmm. Okay. That's good to know. When you originally got your broker's license, were you drawn to residential for that safety as an investor? Did you kind of play in all the commercial spaces, see what you you worked best with? At least in our arena, apartments are the grubby investments. They're they're kind of the lowest prestige thing. It may be the safest, and they may have created more millionaires than any other type. When I was interviewing, frankly, with a, a really fancy firm, the guy that I met said, you should either do industrial or you should do apartments. I didn't understand at the time, but in effect, he said, you don't have enough class to do retail or office. You, you have to have poise for that. I didn't get what he said and why he said it, but later I figured it out. So I thought there were other things that were more glamorous. But when a recession came along, it was kind of a door opened up and the apartments made sense to me. I figured this is simple enough that even I could do it. And I started out on my own. I got recruited by a bigger firm and apartments were a logical step in the door. And fortunately, it was, it was a wonderful path. I want you to believe I was smart enough to plan it out this was just dumb luck, and I'm grateful for it. There you go. Right place, right time. Yes. So you have some great chapters in the book about successful buying, operating, renovating, and selling apartments. So let's skip over a couple of those, you know, a couple of great tips per category. So what are some of your best successful buying tips for apartments? There's two 
that I think are worthwhile. You want to buy the dog on the block. You want to get the ugliest property with fixable problems. So what I say is, let's. It, it, it varies in different places, but generally speaking, in most markets, this is crazy, but in most markets, you probably make more money by buying apartments in the lower demographic third than in the fanciest demographic third. If the people in the fanciest third have advanced degrees, you're going to pay more for them, and they're going to be in pretty good shape. If you buy property in the lowest demographic third, you're going to have higher credit risk, lower education, and the apartment's frankly going to be beat up. But if you create value by fixing problems, if it's already new and pretty, you can't fix problems very much. But if it's old and ugly, it's relatively easy to fix the problems. You can't make a poor person rich, but you can rent to the best person in that demographic group by having a property that's a little bit better than the rest. And you don't have to win the 100-yard dash by 100 yards. You, you need to win it by just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And there's more choices usually in the less glamorous third. So that's- buying properties with fixable problems and being willing to look in areas that you would you want to invest in places you wouldn't live and live in places you wouldn't invest. A lot of folks say, location, location, location. You know what? If I wouldn't live there, I wouldn't own it. Those are completely understandable. And I want to say hogwash. If it's your kids, you want your kids to go to great schools. But you know what? You don't make more money if your tenants' kids go to great schools. One of the most amazing discoveries that I made was location, location, location is a great thing for your residents, but the better thing for your investments is leverage, leverage, leverage. In our county, I've done this off and on for 30 years. When I look at the fanciest zip code and how long did it take it to go up 10%, it's about the same time as this toughest neighborhood, how long it went up. But if somebody bought in the fanciest zip code, they put down more than 50% for apartments. If they bought in a more challenged zip code, they may have put down 25 or 35%. And if they both go up 10%, million dollar building, and you put $600,000 down, $400,000 loan, goes up 10%, your 400,000 became 500. If you bought in a different area and you put $300,000 down, everything goes up $100,000, your three hundred becomes four hundred. dollars <laughs> That's much, much better. The leverage makes more difference in the location. It may not be true in every area, but in our place, it does. Hmm. Now, you've closed on a property. What are some successful operating? Do you, do you look for professional management, self-manage? That's, for a couple, that's pillow talk. For you, it's what's your next best use of time? Mm. If you're a brain surgeon, if you're a pilot, it probably doesn't make sense for you to manage it. If you're a janitor, it probably does make sense for you to manage it. There's some people who are really good at some things and awful at others. So you might have somebody who does the candyman work or who does the leasing and you take care of the reps. 
But part of it is, what are you good at? If you are a soft touch, you can't hear any sob story without wanting to reach into your purse or your wallet. You probably should not be dealing with the tenants yourself. You probably want somebody else to do that. Given the way I'm wired, it's easier for me to hire it done, not just because I don't like 10,000 little details, but I can bring more value to the marketplace by focusing on higher level things. That doesn't mean I'm a snob. It just means if you need me to fix a toilet, what some people could do in 10 minutes, I can do in less than 10 hours. But I seem to be able to negotiate deals that most of my competitors can't even diagnose, much less prescribe for. So it's kind of that's kind of a matter of what you want to do. I know some people are multimillionaires, and they could be twice as wealthy, and they love fixing things. You know, their highest calling is I want to treat my clients well. I want it to be nice. And for them, the pride of ownership, that's the right answer for them. Other people hire it all done. So that's kind of what you want to do now that you're grown up. Mm. Now, in terms of operating an apartment complex, why you're going through that renovation phase, what are some good tips that you have that you've learned over the years? You're in the value creation business if you're a landlord. Mm-hmm. If you spend a th- if you spend a thousand bucks and you create an extra thousand dollars of value, that's not very good. You want to find a way to spend a thousand bucks and create two thousand dollars worth of value. Manufacturers figure out how can I create more value than what it costs. And in real estate in particular, it's that's that's how you make the most money. Collecting the rent checks is the dimes. Getting the dimes to multiply, that's the dollars. So in terms of why you do the renovation, you do the renovation to create extra value. So congratulations, you just bought a fourplex, or maybe you bought a 40plex, but you've got some extra units. So what are you going to do with them? Well, maybe you've got the original kitchens, maybe you've got the original bathroom. Maybe you're one of the last guys to have shag carpet in your area. So you can spend $100,000 on your apartment. What few things will give you the most bang for the buck? Well, paint is pretty cheap and makes a difference. Free landscaping can make a difference. Mailboxes can make a difference. If you're smart, if you don't know this, you'll learn from your tenants or from property managers. Do people like black cabinetry? Sounds terrible to me, but in my market, there's a lot of people like black cabinetry. Okay, well, black painting them black is cheaper than putting a new cabinetry. Which one gives you the biggest bang for the buck? And a manufacturer is trying to make profit. They say, okay, I can do this and I get a tiny return. I can do that and get a big return. As an investor, you want to become a scientist about how you create the most value. When we were in Jacksonville, Florida, we learned that a $20 gallon of paint is very complicated. I hope you can figure it out. A $20 gallon of paint costs as much as $20 gallon of paint. And we said to tenants, if you pick any one of these five custom colors, you can have an accent wall and we'll only charge you $20 a month for it. And they love those accent colors. And you know what else cost us? Well, no more than a regular gallon of paint, but it was customized. You know, maybe you put red or purple or green or orange or black front doors on. 
you find the things that your tenants will pay for. Well, how do you know? When you're talking with them, you say, Scott, I'm really glad you came by. I'm thinking about doing X or Y. Which would you rather have? And if we did that, would that be worth an extra five or 10 or $25 for you? And if you ask a lot of people, you eventually figure out, yeah, the stainless steel appliances are worth the extra that they cost. And you figure out in my market for this demographic, is quartz countertops worth the extra price compared to granite, compared to leaving them alone? So you do surveys. You don't have to be 10,000 people, but you make choices with your money in terms of how do I get the most bang for my buck? Hmm. I love that kind of interviewing to see what marketplace, you know, wants and Hey, is it worth this? That's great. So what are some of your favorite renovations that you look for when you're looking at a value add property? Well, the easiest thing in our market, most of our buildings have the original kitchens and bathrooms. What I'm going to say next, when I first encountered it, it seemed like sexism to me. But I've come to believe that most couples who make a choice, she picks out the place. And figuratively speaking, he says, honey, if I can put my boots under your bed, that's okay with me. Mm -hmm. Now he, a lot of, you might be different. But lots of guys say, well, let's see, it's got a roof that's good. It's got a floor that's good. We got water in, we got water out, we got bathrooms, we got kitchens. Okay, passive, we got a front door, we got a back door, they got locks. We win, I'm happy. Some guys are pretty fussy. But often the ladies can say, well, you remember this detail of the kitchen? You remember this detail of the bathroom? She's probably going to make her choice based on the water rooms. Not true for everybody, but it's true for a lot of folks. So if you can figure out how to make it desirable for her, that's a good thing. Kitchens and bathrooms are logical. You want the outside to be appealing enough. You want it to have pop from the outside. You don't want them to drive by your property and say, that's ugly. What else? And keep going. It needs to be appealing enough that they'll come in. And then when they come in, you want it designed for her eye. And you want it designed in a way where she will say, we looked at seven properties, four of them I don't remember, but the three I liked best were, and I really liked this one. And so designing it for her eye matters. In some cases, we planted flowers on the outside. Flowers didn't last all that long. They were long enough to get what we wanted. In some cases, it was accent colors. But it's usually what will get the lady's eye. If it's all, if it's ugly as homemade sin, it will be small differences, but you start with the least amount of money first and work your way up. And you start in the outside first and you work your way up. I like that. And that's so funny that you mentioned that every time I walk through a property, I'm looking at structure, HVAC, electrical roof, and then the paint, all the little stuff doesn't matter. That's, that's the stuff I love value add. Um, right. Now, how about, you know, selling it? So you repositioned a property, in terms of you know putting it on its best self, increasing the NOI, what do you look to as a broker on the sales side? People buy income property for income. And so your job as an investor is to create more income. And so if you've lowered the expenses and you raise the income, that's a good deal because you're selling it as a multiple of the net income. 
Okay. Now, you know, going back to the beginning, when did you become a syndicator and then why did you pivot from more of the broker side you know, to, to doing deals yourself? I became a syndicator maybe five years into the business. I was doing brokerage and syndication. Your rules and other people's mind are different than mine, but I would not compete and still will not compete with clients. It was the most lucrative per hour thing probably that I've done other than preparing for negotiation. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. And I remember talking with Gene Throwbridge about going back and and he's kind of worn two to three hats over the years. And I said, you know, what was, what's type of your best advice thinking back? And he said, you know, I think I would have gone more full time in a syndication as opposed to the broker business. Now, have you found that a lucrative, you know, would you compliment that saying as well? Or is that, you know, have you found something different more so on the brokerage side? Gene's a smart attorney. He's a great instructor. He's a wise fellow. And I believe that makes sense. Once upon a time, if, if what I say now contradicts Gene, believe Gene. But once upon a time, he had a couple of thousand people who were investors in his deal. <laughs> that was a crazy maker. And he said, you know, I've had all the fun that I could stand. But syndication, at least in, in our lifetime, uh, with an ongoing upward market and you've got a leverage of that. It's a derivative of it. It's a multiplier. That could have made sense. Kenley, in our situation, we didn't have enough cash to eat while we were doing syndication. We needed something else. When I was doing syndication, I talked to potential investors. And I said, what did you like? What, why wouldn't you do it? And many people said, well, the syndicator made money on everything that moved, took money out at the front end, and that stunk because the syndicator was going to make money and I might get the experience. I don't want to do that. And so I went back to them and said, all right, how about if I work for free unless you get richer? But by the way, if you get richer, I get richer. That was an easier thing to sell. So when mm-hmm. I sold the building, I would roll all of my commission into it. I would pay the tax. So in a cash situation... It was negative cash flow, but I had a share of the equity. Mm. And that worked. But we still had gas to buy. And we still needed bread, milk, and eggs. And we had a mortgage payment. And so we needed funds for other things. I wasn't independently wealthy, so I could just do the syndication. But we, we would do a few things where... You know, we sponsored less than a dozen situations, but each time it was kind of, can we afford to do this? Can we afford to pay the tax? Can we put a deal together? And eventually we, we got pretty good at it. All of our clients made money, mm-hmm. but it was, it was difficult to do because most deals, frankly, we didn't think were good enough to syndicate, but we, we put it together. But if I started with a million dollars, yeah, I would do syndication more than just brokerage. But for me, it's not about how big is the estate, yet the impact that I can have. And so, you know, if my net worth goes up tenfold, wahoo, you know what? I'm not going to drive three Bentleys. I'm not going to have seven steaks or four bottles of champagne tonight. I'm I'm not going to fly first class to Europe. I've got a comfortable lifestyle my payoff is in something else. So I get a kick out of helping people make smart choices about money 
And that's more important to me than tripling my net worth. Doesn't mean I'll work for free, but it's a matter of, as I've done my values and priorities, I would like to have a higher net worth when I die, but it's not worth what it would cost to blow off brokerage and do full-time syndication, even if full-time syndication would be more profitable. Mm. What's right for you or what's right for our listeners could be different. Mm. Well, I love that. Now, building that legacy wealth, that's great. Now, you have one of the most unique things in any book I've read to date. So the, my favorite resource in the back of the book is The Wisdom from Your Library. So what are your top three books of all time that you've read? That was the hardest question. Mm. You recently, I'm going to answer your question. <laughs> but we went to a memorial recently. Aunt Shirley died she was my wife's last aunt. And Aunt Shirley collected things. She collected blue glassware and roosters. Not live roosters, but little knickknacks. <laughs> roosters? Yeah, roosters. So there were 150 people or 250 people there, and people were telling stories about Grandma Shirley or Aunt Shirley or friend Shirley. And at one point, the daughter got up, and she said, look, on all your tables... There's some blue glass and there's some ceramic roosters. We've gotten everything we want as a family and we want you to carry it home. So take some memento of Aunt Shirley, Grandma Shirley. We looked around and we picked up some things for us and other family representatives who had kind of deputized us. And the next day, my wife and I both talked about that. Wasn't that a sweet thing to pass on mementos, which, you know, would have gotten sold or given away, but they were given away to people who cared about Shirley. And I said, so here's what I want. When I'm gone, I want you to go through my library. You can burn 93% of it and give it away. But on 7% of the books that you think I would like, put them out on the table so people could carry them home. I'm an only child, an orphan only child without kids. So to me, books are friends. And giving away books is like shooting children. But I guess that's the, the thing that I thought of would, I'm a Christian, so the Bible is important to me. I think it's inspired. You may not. Even if you don't think it's inspired, the book of Proverbs has 600 or maybe 1,000 dual sentences, couplets, that talk about what smart ways to live. So whether that's an inspired book or not, there's a bunch of practical wisdom in there. I happen to think it's inspired, but for me, the Bible would be the first book. Um, getting to yes, the Harvard Business School's negotiation. It may not be the best book I've ever read on negotiation, but it's fundamental. It's a classic. It's bread, milk, and eggs. And it's a really good tool for almost anybody in terms of real estate. Okay, if you let this deal go, what's your next best option? Hmm. So that's a great tool. It may not be the best negotiation book, but it's, it's one of the three best books. And then the third one is one called Crucial Conversations. There were four folks, Patterson, and I don't remember the other three. They wrote a couple of different books, but they looked over a generation. They, they interviewed like 100,000 people, and they tried to figure out what makes Scott so amazing. What, what does he do that nobody else does? What's, what's his distinguishing characteristic? 
And it wasn't that you were smarter. It wasn't that you were more handsome. It wasn't that you were taller. It wasn't that you were hairier. That wasn't it. It was your ability to deal with ticklish situations and come up with a solution. And they talked about crucial conversations, one where there's a difference of opinion. It's really important. And there's emotion. So this is not where we're going to go to dinner tonight. This is not, should we take a swim in the pool or should we play pool? It was more important than that. And some people are unusually skilled at that kind of communication and other people, not so much. And it doesn't mean that I've mastered crucial communication or I'm fabulous at negotiation. I want my clients to believe that. I want it to be true or that I've mastered the Bible. But I think those are the three books that I would say are most important. That's beautiful. I love it. Leaving on the table. It's going to be a, a great touch. And I think, I think one of my favorite teachers of all time is Jim Rome. And, you know, the, I think you said something, I'm going to butch the quote, but first thing we do when we walk into someone's house is we check out their library. Good call. Felt that is true and, and just trying to grow and, and just reading books. And it just opens your mind to, to things you've thought about. And, you know, the education is just endless. Yeah. Uh, Jim was an abundance thinker and he fed Tony Robbins and almost everybody else who's closer in our age grew up on Jim Rohn and people like that. Mm. That's great. Now, before we wrap things up, I always ask a couple of questions at the end. So uh, the best real estate and business advice you've ever received and your best advice on life. Well, you've already heard one of them for investment by the dog in the block. So that's William Nickerson's how I turned $3,000 into a million. And he wrote the book over and over and over again, but it was always the same idea. On the brokerage end, it was something I got through CCIM, which was it's a people business first. It's a financing business second. It's a property business third. Lots of people say, I want a pretty property. And if it's got great financing and it's ugly as homemade sin, you can make money. If you're a jerk or you don't know how to deal with the jerk, you're not going to close the deal. People first, financing second, property third. That was the best brokerage. Um, advice that I've got. There's no extra charge. I'm going to give you a third one. <laughs> With CCIM, I also learned professo. In the olden days, Greek and Roman days, if you wanted to, to know the secret as a pharmacist or as a doctor or as a lawyer, the old guy would say, all right, I'll tell you the secret art, but you got to promise. You have to professo that you will never use your secret knowledge to the client's detriment. And if you professed, if you swore that you would never use your knowledge to the client's detriment, then they would let you in on the secret arts. That's where we get the idea of professional. A lot of people in brokerage now who think that clients are walking wallets. Hmm. They're privileged purses put there for your benefit. But if you have the, the idea that the client is first, if you really care about the client, then you are professional. In terms of best advice at life, this is not going to be very complicated. I wish I had invented it, but love the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. And the second is like unto it. Treat people the way you want to be treated. It's easy to say it's hard to live, but that's the best instruction that I've gotten. 
Wise words from a, from a beautiful mind that's got so much education and knowledge. So, Terry, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Uh, thank you. Tell you. Me, it's been a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun. I always love learning and I always love, uh, you know, talking books, especially from another book buff. So what's the best place to reach you and the best place to purchase your book? Amazon's the best place to get the book. You can get it Kindle, you can get it softback, you can get it hardback. And if you like it, go back later and post a review. Um, you can reach me three different ways. My cell is 619-889-1031. Yes, like 1031 exchange, 619-889-1031. My website is sandiegoapartmentbroker.com or my email is tmoore1031 at gmail.com. Glad you asked. Thank you. Thanks, Terry. Really appreciate it.